1978, a teenager goes missing after her brother drops her off at a local 7-Eleven. Eight grueling months later, her family learns her body has been found. The police never caught the culprit. But I believe I've found the killer. I'm M. William Phelps, an investigative journalist and author of 40-plus true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. In the first part of this special two-part episode, we focused on the first eight months of this case. Patty Luce's disappearance and murder. If you missed it, I suggest going back and listening before continuing on with this episode. Last week, you met Patty's family, and the timeline brought us up to when her remains were found about 15 miles from where she lived. I talked about a suspect, and today, we're going to name names. He was one of the four men inside a car in the 7-Eleven parking lot where Patty was last seen. For now, I'm going to call him Jim S. We won't use his full name, but law enforcement, and just as important to me, Patty's family know exactly who I'm talking about. It's clear from eyewitnesses and evidence that Patty was not abducted in a conventional way. And what I mean by that is how it is in the movies or on a true crime reenactment. I don't think she was walking home and somebody forced her into the vehicle, sped off, and killed her later. There were so many people around that night at the 7-Eleven and so many people who would have known Patty Somebody would have said something and reported it immediately had she been forced into a vehicle, especially after she's missing for like a day, two days, three days. And if you recall, we heard extensively from Patty's brother, David Luce, who dropped her off at the 7-Eleven that night. David gave us a lot of new information about this case. It's been 44 years since David has spoken about it. All of that considered, the information David provided gives us an important clue leading back to those guys sitting in the car in the 7-Eleven parking lot on the night Patty went missing. Here's David Luce again. My sister would never get in any vehicle unless she knew the person. She wouldn't go to any any car with a stranger, never. It was somebody she knew. And she knew those guys? Yeah. All of them? Yeah. Same age? Same, yeah. Went to school together? Same grade, yeah. So... uh, I know that for a fact. She, I know she wouldn't. Oh, it's definitely somebody she knew. Patty knew each one of those guys inside that car. Maybe not as close friends, but she knew them from school and the neighborhood. Jim S. in particular. Jim S. was one of the guys in that car. He turned 19 two months before. He lived in the same neighborhood as the Luce family, up the road, where David Luce says those troublemaker, quote, druggy-type kids lived. On top of that, David talked about Jim S. being a violent teen. I also dug up information about Jim S. and his life of violence. We're not talking about a dude who went around just kicking people's asses. This was a guy who was sort of unhinged, who could snap and turn violent within a moment's notice. Yeah, he had a history. He he kicked my cousin's teeth out. Tell me about that. They they hung around all all in the area, and, and they went out one night, and they're having some beers out somewhere. 
uh, they got some kind of brawl. He's a chunky guy, short. He 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 knew how to fight. You know, he started and they were fighting. He was he had him on the ground, pounding him. Out of nowhere, just said and took it. He had uh, the Herman Survivor boots there. I remember them thing. Sure. And yeah, he ran up and kicked him right in the right and took his teeth right out. Right in, the, right in the face, yeah, laying down, he, and he just ran and, you know, he could have killed him. It's no surprise that Jim S. had a violent history beyond those incidents I mentioned in episode one, when he was actually arrested for assaulting men and women, both before Patty's disappearance and then the years after. That warrant I referred to in the first part of this special was being written for Jim S.'s arrest in Patty's murder, but it never materialized into charges. If you remember from last week's episode, light brown hair was found on that purple cloth near Patty's body. That cloth was a scarf. Jim S. had light brown hair, sure. That's not even close to a smoking gun. But they did find human blood on the rear seat cover removed from Jim S.'s car. A 1970s silver-gray Pontiac identical to the one David saw at the 7-Eleven with those four guys in it. I know what you're asking yourself. Can't they go back and test that forensic evidence now with all the new technology we have today? It's a great question when I've asked law enforcement myself. There are problems there, which I'll get into soon. Law enforcement resubmitted and waited and waited for forensics to return that purple-colored cloth, a.k.a. scarf, found with hairs on it near Patty's remains. But at the time, forensics was so limited Nothing ever came of it. Same with the blood found on the rear seat of Jim S.'s car. Still, one of the most interesting aspects of the entire investigation for me is David Luce, the last person to officially see Patty alive. There was no way, as I reported in the first part, that David could have asked the dudes for a ride home, as several, including Jim S., claimed in that arrest warrant. But here's where we run into a problem. There was never any real follow-up. Not until decades later when that special task force went back and began re-interviewing people connected to Jim S. and the others in that car. By then it was all too late, for reasons I'll soon explain. David says he was never re-interviewed, and I could find no record of him being spoken to again. See, why didn't he... Officers ask me that question, that would have gave them a lot of information because I would have denied it. I would say, no, I did right. not. They never no. asked you that. No. They, no. Never, they never asked you, were you sitting with in his car that night? No. That, that, that is significant. Another point of contention in that warrant I obtained is that one of the other guys in the car said he never saw David at the 7-Eleven. That should have been an investigatory red flag for detectives early on in this case. Here you have contradictory statements from a group of men sitting in a car where a young woman goes missing. Several of them, with even a cursory search, already had records and arrests. All of this is grounds to separate these guys and begin playing them against one another. Look, I don't want to sound as though I'm bashing the police work here. I'm really not. I am stating facts of the case. And things were done entirely different than they are today. So we have to look at this through a 1978 lens. Yet in retrospect, the biggest question is, why didn't the cops ever talk to David Luce again? 
David makes another good point after I pointed out the lies those dudes told police. You see, when I interviewed David, he was baffled by what they said because all of it was lies. Information, I should note, David was hearing for the first time. He never saw me there. Well, how'd I get my sister there? None of that makes any sense. Brand new motorcycle. I I was so excited to show. The reason why I would have stayed with my sister is because I was so excited to show my friends that I work with at Top Notch that my sister knew my new motorcycle. And I said, no, I said, and then I said, I said, no, I'm, I'm, you're with me. I said, I said, you know, I'll, whatever you want to do. I didn't want to leave her there. And she said, no, I'm going to be fine. I'll meet some friends here. Nothing's going to happen to me. But where there's smoke, there's fire. Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back and get into this. As I continued investigating this case, I found another piece of information that could be very important. In June 1995, the body of a 33-year-old woman is found in the Hockenham River, approximately two miles from where Patty went missing. She is found at the bottom of a steep stone wall, a 16-foot drop. That same year, police said publicly that they believed the woman might have fallen off the wall, which was actually like a cliff, very slippery and unsafe. They said they had, quote, no evidence of foul play and suggested she might have jumped. Can I just say, though, like 16 feet is not a very far way to fall. So that's my producer, Catherine Law, and you are going to hear from her from time to time. It is, uh, Catherine, if you've seen this area, because it's all stone underneath. Okay. So if you fell head first, you're dead. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I should say if you fell or you were pushed. As I read an article about the case in the Hartford Current, they included a statement from the woman's brother. His name? The very same Jim S. He said his sister had lost her job and her car was towed away after she was ticketed for operating an unregistered vehicle the night before she was found. And here's what I find really interesting. Jim S. brought a Hartford Current reporter out to the top of the wall, and he walked back and forth across the stone platform where she must have stood before she fell. And here's what the article says, quote, Jim S. was looking for clues to his sister's death. Jim S. was also quoted as saying, she must have slipped off the wall, end quote. This death could be significant within the Patty Luce murder investigation, according to sources close to the situation that I interviewed. Patty's younger sister, Marcia, has vivid memories from those days before her sister was murdered. Marcia shared something with me that I at first wasn't going to include in this episode, and yet, as I went over this case again and again, I decided it's important to allow Marcia to speak her truth. It involves Jim S.'s sister, who died in that fall, or jump, as Jim S. and police put it, from that ledge wall. Marcia believes Jim S.'s sister had something to say about Patty, that she had, in other words, important information about Patty's disappearance and murder. She wanted to to talk. To be clear, Marsha is alleging that Jim S.'s sister might have known what happened to Patty. I asked Marsha where she was getting the information we were talking about. That bleep you'll hear is Jim S.'s full surname. It was a a girlfriend of mine. She she knew the the family and 
she gave me a ring and asked me if it was Patty's. Really? I don't know what happened to her. I gave it to my mom. It was a turquoise ring, and, and she and I know it was her ring. By her, Marsha is referring to Patty. She said that the, that uh, her sister had this, and 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 I, I just was I couldn't believe it, and I gave it to my mom, and I told my mom all about it, and we didn't know what to do. So, so my sister found this ring, and that's maybe how she found out. And questioned exactly, him. Exactly. Exactly. So to get this straight, Marsha is alleging that Jim S.'s sister confronted him about having a ring Patty owned. And not long after, Jim S.'s sister was found dead. It was an accidental death. She fell off the cliff. This is what I was told. I'm not. We will never know what happened to Jim's sister. All we know factually is that she died that day in 1995 and police ruled out foul play. If Jim S. had Patty's ring, this is more evidence that he was with Patty on the night of her disappearance and murder or knew the person who was. Otherwise, why else would he have it? What happened between Jim and his sister? I have no idea, but this all looks pretty damn suspicious to me. That's all I'm saying. It drives me crazy when you find a killer, you know who he is, and you can't bring them to justice. Whether it's a technicality, shoddy investigative work, or the forensics are lost, or whatever it is, it's heartbreaking. Unfortunately here, Patty's killer will never see the inside of a jail cell. Jim S. died in 2005 at the age of 46 from a drug overdose. He was found in the back seat of a vehicle. The loss one community suffered within this one case is immense. So many deaths. So many people were affected by what happened to Patty. Marsha Luce carries that weight on her back to this day. She took care of me. She was always protecting me. Um, just there, we... we, we stayed in the same room uh, same bed we always slept together and uh just a just like the perfect sister always there always give me a bath brushing my hair teaching me things just everything wonderful if you'll recall from our last episode Most of the Luce family was out of town when Patty went missing. As she looks back, this has tortured Marsha, who I have gotten to know well over the years. I had I had the choice to stay home or go to the Cape. And at this point, I wish that I stayed home because things might have been a little bit different. Why do you say that? Because she would have been staying home with me. She wouldn't have gone anywhere. She was. She would have been home with me. So I wish I just stayed home. And it wouldn't have happened. She wouldn't have gone anywhere. So that that's what I feel inside. I hear this a lot from victims' families. And I can say the same from my own family, who lost a loved one in a case that was never solved. The waiting. All that wondering. The idea that you do not know all the answers and likely 
you never will. Waiting for her was the tough part, waiting. And the days going by and, and nothing. Nothing. Waiting out my window. Tell me about that. What would you what were you doing? Ooh. This is tough. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I would just be in my room because it was too much going on and a lot of crying and uh searching and I was t- too young to to get involved with that, so I was just kind of stuck in my room waiting for her to come home and I just waited at the window waited waited watched all the police detectives reporters just everything just devastating coping with this stuff as Marcia explains better than I think most could is different for everyone and her story of how this type of grief evolves over time is so important for us to understand. Well, I think I I blocked it out until they reopened the case. It was just blocked. I didn't remember anything. I I remembered, but I blocked it. It Too much pain. Too much pain. I couldn't handle it. But nobody would talk about it. Nobody would say anything. It was just, just too much hurt inside. Marcia is sincere and honest. And it's within that self-awareness she has, I think, that the reality of loss exists. You know, there is that raw emotional authenticity that you just can't get from a police report. When I got off the bus and I, I walked into the house, I just sat on the steps and just kind of curled up into the corner and and they they had articles of clothing and they were are these her clothes everybody all over the house just huddled down into the corner crying i i was just i didn't know what to, what what do i do it wasn't real it was like it was like it was a nightmare that you never want to wake up ever As Marcia grew and tried to carry on with life, you know, this tragedy etched on her family, it just followed her around like some sort of storm cloud. I I was so isolated that my mother couldn't be a real mom. My dad couldn't be a real dad. I I didn't have a normal, normal childhood whatsoever. It was just horrifying to even go to school or just... Everybody would point and stare, and and all they wanted was my sister to come home, come home. Because at that age, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand. Uh, it's bringing back some really, really hard wounds that are just always there and never go away. Never, ever go away. It just ruined my life. Like your life stopped when you were 12 years old. Yeah, I just loved her so much. Couldn't she just buy everything? When I was alone in the bed all the time, and she was always there, I was just, I just, my soul just left. I didn't know. 
wow. <laughs> I feel like I'm reliving it. When I interviewed the Luce family that day, I told them I was confident Jim S. murdered Patty, but also a conspirator or two helped. I gave them the names, and each one of the Luce family members recognized those names. Closure can be an ugly, shallow word, but Marsha and her family are very grateful to have answers, which is very humbling for me. It just stops the wondering and uh, who could have done this and how. It, it, it doesn't bring her back. It doesn't, but it, it, it does help a lot. The why of it all will haunt you forever if you allow it to. Let's take a quick break right here, and we'll come right back. It's healthy to remind yourself that there's a legal system in place, not a justice system. I spoke to the lieutenant in charge of Patty's case and asked him about Jim S. and those other dudes in the car that night at the 7-Eleven so long ago. This person told me they are confident Jim S. is their guy. But solving the case formally amounts to manpower, money, and current caseload. And we're talking about an epidemic of Oxycontin and heroin, burglaries associated with those drugs, and also predators seeking children online throughout Tallinn County. And this consumes the department time-wise these days. It's the same story in town after town across this country. The detective who now has Patty's case is a stellar investigator, and he's a great guy. He's just overwhelmed with current cases, and the money and person power for cold case work is barely there. I suggested they reinterview David Luce, who has not been interviewed since that day a finger was poked into his chest and he was accused in his sister's disappearance. The case remains officially unsolved and will likely never be solved publicly. Often, you know, this is truly how investigations evolved. Sometimes they work out and there's a big announcement. Everybody stands at the podium and it's a kumbaya moment. Other times, an arrest never happens, and yet law enforcement know who is responsible. So for now, the case is sitting, waiting to be closed, and the right people, I am confident, are on it. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the Vernon Police Department. And most who listen to my podcasts, they will understand that. But until then, all we can do is wait. Research for today's episode comes from original reporting by M. William Phelps and exclusive law enforcement documents obtained by Phelps. Special thanks to Rachel McGrath for additional research. Crossing the Line is executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bocci, executive producer Christina Everett, and audio engineer Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. 